A WWA Douglas DC-3 is doing a series of hops from New York to California when it does not get to its final destination. What caused this flight to fly straight into a mountain? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. We don't have any new news for you. Because we just recorded the last episode. Literally like a few hours ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, we don't have anything new. Nothing. If you want ducks, ducks are still available. Several of you signed up for them unexpectedly. We sent those. We did. So if you have not received your ducks by the time you're hearing this, please let us know. Unless you signed up after Thanksgiving. Right. In which case, you're not getting them yet. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to wait until Paige comes back and can do all the mailing again. Yep. Everything in time. So make sure you submit stories if you would like. For December, we always like doing gift stories. Yep. So you can send us the best gift you ever got or the story of the best gift you ever got. Anna uh, <laughs> can hit her microphone. Yep. And that will be included in the November slash December episode because slash who no, who the hell knows anymore? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, slash it might be just a listener episode number one hundred and fifty three, something like that. We don't, we don't have, have that, that many. many. No, <laughs> it was a joke. Okay, so that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, where last week was a really long episode, this week will be a very short one, probably. Today we are covering TWA flight. Three. We did change our schedule just a little bit in case you are wondering because it turned out the flight that we had scheduled for this week does not have an English report. So sorry to Sublight who recommended Varig Flight 254. That one will hopefully come around again someday. I, I know we could go through the work of trying to translate it, but that was too much for our brains for this week after having also done... Turns out I don't speak Portuguese. Yeah, but it is a very interesting accident. And I would like to cover it someday. So thank you to Kate for recommending TWA Flight 3. Yes, thank you. This accident occurred on January 15th of 1942. Taking it back. All the way back. (laughs) This one is definitely one of the absolute earliest we have ever talked about. I'm not even sure if we've recorded one earlier than this. Uh, Yes, we have. The one we did with Emily, I think. That was Northwest Flight 2 or Northwest Flight 1? Something Something early. Another single-digit flight. Anyways, this was a Douglas DC-3 with a tail number November Charlie 1946. Woohoo. 1946. This was not in 1946. This was in 1942. I hope y'all know your history at this point. Douglas DC-3, this is one of the most famous airplanes that's ever existed. There are still some flying. Because they're just that crazy. We've seen one recently. Yep, there's one that lives in Colorado that flies around. They are very, they were very, very versatile aircraft for the time. They were passenger aircraft, they were cargo aircraft, they were military aircraft. As a matter of Yep, as a matter of fact, during the war, all DC-3s and DC-2s ended up being basically taken for military use. Because they were just so freaking useful. And they could also produce these at insane rates. I mean, they would roll them off by like tens by the day. Because they just were so versatile and so capable and so easy to be built. How long from beginning of manufacture to end of manufacturer? I have no idea. How long did it take to manufacture a DC-3 during? I have no idea. Be my guess to research that. I'm sure it wasn't very long. The DC-3 is a tail dragger. It's a piston engine, radial piston engine. This airplane leans back quite a bit. If you've ever seen them, I'm sure you have, because this is, for the longest period of history, 
what you would draw when you draw an airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, we've been to a museum or museums that had them in there. Yes, we've been to several. I know the one in Orange County has at least one. Two. Two. They have two. Yep, well, one of them is a... DC-2. It's a C-something or other. Yeah. It's the military version. It's the military it's version. It's the exact same thing. And then there, I think there's one in the Boeing Museum of Flight. There is. Is there a full one there? Mm-hmm. I thought so. It's hanging up. It's one of the airplanes that's hanging up from the ceiling in the, the glass room, the big... I have some statistics since I have the Wikipedia page pulled up. 607 civilian variants were produced. 10,048 C-47 and C-53 derivatives were built in Santa Monica, California. Right, that's Long, the military one. Long Beach, California, and Oklahoma City. They built those in three years. That's freaking insane. <laughs> 4,937 were built under license in the Soviet Union. Yeah, that happens, actually. And then 487 Mitsubishi Kinzai-engined aircraft were built in Showa and Nakajima in Japan mm-hmm. in World War II. Right. So, obviously, you can see how many of them were built during World War II. And the crazy thing is, like, this is something that I guess just, like, a lot of the generations alive now tend not to comprehend and just can't understand how this is even a possibility, but a lot of these aircraft were used during the war, and if they survived the war, went on to commercial service. Can you imagine flying in an airplane that was like, oh yeah, this was a cargo carrier or an airborne dropship for the military for a couple of years? I feel like when we were at the Orange County Airport, they told us how long it took to manufacture one of yeah, these, it's not and I very just long. can't pull that number out of my head. It is not very long. That's all that matters. So, this was just before the U.S. decided... To enter said war? Sort of. To be deeply involved. Anyways. It kind of, we were already involved. I'll put it that way. Okay, anyway. Anyways. This was a flight from New York City to Burbank in California via Indianapolis, St. Louis, Albuquerque, and Las Vegas. (laughs) I was like, there has to be several hops in there. There's no way it can go all the way across the country. No, 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 no. This airplane can definitely not make it all the way across the country. This airplane's range was actually horrible. Still is. I mean, also, it's a DC-3, so yes. Also, you don't want its range to be very long because this thing flies like a snail. I'll be honest, the DC-3 is a very slow airplane. I mean, yeah, we were getting around faster than trains and cars, but not, not by much with the DC-3. And I'll we had be, different cars back then. I'll be, yep, I'll be 100 straight up honest, 100% straight up honest about that. The DC-3 is not a fast flyer. Anyways... The whole accident actually happens during the Las Vegas to Burbank, the very last leg. So that's really the leg in question. But we'll get there. The captain for this flight was Wayne Williams. He was 41 years old at the time. He had 12,024 hours, of which 3,500 were on the DC-3. So he was actually a pretty experienced pilot for the time. There's not a lot of pilots at that time, that era, that could say they had 12,024 hours on anything or total. So that's pretty impressive. The first officer was M.A. Gillette. I don't know what M stands for. I don't know what A stands for. Couldn't figure that out. M.A. Gillette. He was 25 years old. At the time, he had 1,330 hours total, of which 650 were on the DC-3. Kind of young. Kind of new. The flight was to have 19 passengers and three crew, including the famous actress Carol Lombard, her mother, and her MGM press agent returning from a successful war bond promotion tour in the Midwest that raised over $2 million for war bonds. How much was that? How much is that now? That's a a lot lot of money. It's a lot. Two million back then. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're talking about a war that everybody supported. That's true. It's a very different thing. $36 million? Holy. That's not a small thing. Woo! 
Good yep. job, her. I'm sorry. Yep. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And we're talking about just 19 passengers and three crew for just that last leg. Yeah. FYI, because it's kind of complicated. The, all along their route, they were taking and dropping people. And I don't know. They don't have any of those details. So it doesn't matter. All of the flights all the way to Albuquerque were normal. Arriving at 4.06 p.m. local time into Albuquerque, where a crew swap was made and refueling was accomplished. So the crew swap was to the accident crew from, I don't have any of the other crews, so I don't the know. The other crew, yeah. Yep. All that said, they were still running about three hours late up to that point due to upline delays at other stations, such as cargo handling and an almost two-hour delay in St. Louis for weather. Oof. So all things considered to be only three hours behind when you have to stop so friggin' many places and fly so slow from one place to another. That's not bad, actually, <laughs> for the era. At Albuquerque, a group of 15 U.S. Army Air Corps personnel were headed for California and were to join the flight, but this required removing some of the passengers. Mm. And they were to be told this in station. Carol Lombard and her companions were asked to stay at Albuquerque, but she refused based on her war bond efforts. She was like, no, I just raised so much money for you guys. Don't kick me off. Yeah. And so the station manager agreed and allowed her to continue. Wasn't there something about, like, a famous violinist was I was about to get there. Okay. They were allowed to continue on and reboard, so other passengers had to be removed instead, such as famous Hungarian violinist Joseph Zigeti. Zigeti. I don't know. S-Z-I-G-E-T-I. Great. Yep. (laughs) He stayed behind. The flight was originally scheduled to fly direct from Albuquerque to Burbank. That's how they normally scheduled this flight. However, it is regularly too heavy to make that in a nonstop fashion so they built in the stop in las vegas on this route regularly but purely for fuel on top of that the flight was originally figured to be too heavy with a full load of passengers and cargo plus 350 gallons of fuel to make it direct from albuquerque to las vegas so they planned a fuel stop midway in winslow arizona (laughs) as part of the flight plan filed at albuquerque so on top of not only being able to not make it all the way to burbank and stopping in Vegas, now they also can't make it all the way to Vegas, in theory, so now they are planning to stop in Winslow, Arizona, for fuel. Once their radio-received flight release was given from TWA's flight superintendent at Burbank, the flight was cleared to Winslow, and the flight departed Albuquerque at 4.40 p.m. local time. Once airborne, at 5.38 p.m. local time, over Deep Lake, just a point along their way, at 8,000 feet, the captain contacted Burbank again, via radio, to change their clearance request to skip Winslow and continue straight to Las Vegas instead, as they had recalculated fuel with the given consumption to that point, plus distance to go and weather en route, and determined that they could make it to Las Vegas with enough reserve. So, once they were airborne, they received a different release to go all the way to Vegas. This is just not normal. (laughs) These days, we just don't think about these kinds of things like it's just not how aviation works. Well, to be fair, now we have planes that can get you from New York to California. Yep, in one shot. In one shot. (laughs) It it takes, what, maybe six hours Mm -hmm. to go across the country? Mm -hmm. And guess what? When you're in Colorado, you can drive six hours and still be in Colorado. So there you go. I mean, (laughs) now it's not really a problem anymore. Right. It's a very different thing. So anyways, the flight superintendent at Burbank subsequently cleared the flight direct to Las Vegas. The flight made it to Las Vegas, landing at 6.36 p.m. local time, after a flight time of about 2 hours and 56 minutes. At Las Vegas, the plane was once again fueled for the final leg to Burbank. They received clearance for the flight to Burbank via radio, 
The flight then departed Las Vegas at 7.07 p.m. local time. Witnesses on the ground saw the airplane flying, but further northwest than they were accustomed to seeing the airplane flying. So it seemed a little off. Suspicious. Sus. Suspicious. About 7.22 p.m., about 15 minutes into the flight, the aircraft was about 33 miles from the airport when it suddenly struck an almost vertical rock cliff near the top of Potosi Mountain in the Spring Mountain Range at an elevation of approximately 7,700 feet. Jesus. Yep. This was 80 feet below the top of the cliff and 730 feet below the crest of the mountain. This was witnessed by several people on the ground who saw the aircraft burst into flames upon impact. Basically just an explosion and the whole thing burned. All on board perished in the accident and the aircraft was completely destroyed. It was determined that the left wing had contacted a ledge first before the rest of the aircraft impacted hard. Most of the contents of the aircraft had fell, of course, mm-hmm. but some of them were found at the top of the cliff, 80 feet up. It got com- from where they catapulted. Impacted. Yep. Just to give an idea of how they impacted. Okay. That's it. Hmm. This investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board. I was going to say the CAB. The CAB! The predecessor of today's NTSB. And they are wonderfully nice and succinct, which is a pleasant change from last week's episode. Yes, yes it is. Oh my god. If I never have to read that report again, I will be so happy. Examination of the wreckage showed no structural or mechanical failure. Ta-da. Ta-da. So let's talk about navigation for a second. The flight from Las Vegas to Burbank was filed at 8,000 feet, and it is normally conducted using airways lighted by beacons on the ground. Never heard of that one before. There used to be 1,500 of these beacons all over the U.S., and most of them have been removed. There are still a few operational in Portland, Oregon, and western Montana. Of all places. Why don't we have them anymore? Well, they were overtaken by VORs and, much later, GPS. But you might notice, I said that's how flights are normally conducted. But at this time, it couldn't be. Why? The war! The war! The war! (laughs) The war! This is an inside joke. Yes. Ground personnel were required to relay this fact to the flight crew, that the beacons were just in-op, not operational, not working, not lighted. That's nice. And this information should have been entered on or attached to the clearance issued at Las Vegas. Also concerning, given the inoperative state of the beacons, was the fact that there was high terrain on the route, and officials at TWA would be wise to alert the crews that they should operate at higher than 8,000 feet while the beacons were out. Now, what course should have been used? The airway to be used was a magnetic heading of 205 degrees out of Las Vegas until reaching the Table Mountain Beacon, at which point a slight turn to 212 degrees was needed to proceed to Silver Lake and then on to Daggett. Due to military activity, on July 15, 1941, the Civil Aeronautics Administration issued a written notice to all applicable carriers that all operations between Palmdale, California, and Las Vegas, Nevada were to be confined strictly to the airway, day or night, visual or instrument. You stay on the airway. Because military. Mm-hmm. This was relayed to the TWA personnel by TWA's acting chief pilot two days after the notice was issued, and copies of this notice were posted on pilot bulletins in Kansas City, Albuquerque, Burbank, and San Francisco. So, stay on the airway that you can't see. Oh, this was particularly important along the Pacific because, you know, the Pacific War was already very much a thing. So stay on the airway you can't see. Got it. The highest point along the airway between Las Vegas and Silver Lake was less than 6,000 feet. But if you look at the band 15 miles on either side of the airway, there's Potosi Mountain, rising to an elevation of 8,500 feet, which is sort of on the airway, but a little off course. TWA's chief pilot testified that it was practice for flight crews to always fly at least 1,000 feet above terrain unless weather required otherwise. Cool. So what went wrong? Looking at the map, it is immediately clear that the crew was not on the airway. No. Yeah, they weren't even close. (laughs) They were not even close. 
And what did they crash into? A mountain! What do you know? Potosi Mountain, as it turns out. Shocker. The accident occurred at a bearing of 215 degrees from Las Vegas Airport. That's not 205 degrees. No, that's turns out. 10 degrees off. And they crashed at an elevation of 7,770 feet and right into the mountain. That pained me to say mountain. 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 Witnesses confirmed that the plane was flying in a straight line northwest of the airway. They did not deviate from that path. Nope. So they definitely flew in the wrong direction, very confidently. And that caused the crash, at least to some extent. But why? Investigators took a look at the flight plan, which is to be prepared by the first officer and approved by the captain. They read it over and immediately noticed. Captain didn't sign it. (laughs) Wait, what? This is a good sign. He didn't sign the flight plan. He didn't even look at it? He's the one flying and he didn't even look at the flight plan? Pretty much. Bruh, come on. This is like rookie mistakes here. <laughs> it's 1942. Rookie mistakes. I know. This Rookies. captain had over 12,000 hours. Yep. It's not like, oh, he was like not experienced. Like he didn't know what he was doing. Like, no. He was overconfident. Because, yes, he had to have say. been. The flight plan was also filed to be flown along the 218 magnetic heading, which seems to line up quite a bit with where they crashed. They're supposed to be flying the 205. Yep. So all of this was just wrong. Well, when preparing a flight plan, you break it up into several portions, each of which may have a number of legs with separate courses. You, quote unquote, enter on the flight plan for each portion a course, which represents the average of the courses of the individual sectors. The result is that a course designated on the flight plan is approximately equivalent to a straight line between the extremities of the portion of the flight for which it is entered, end quote. So was 218 degrees the average course needed to get from Vegas to Daggett? No. No. Not even close. That would be 210 degrees. But 218 degrees is the average course between Boulder City and Daggett. Why do we care? Well, it turns out that both flight crew, but especially the first officer, flew far more flights from Boulder City to Daggett than Las Vegas to Daggett. 218 may have been entered out of habit. To be precise, the captain had made seven trips between Burbank and Boulder City and two between Burbank and Vegas, but the first officer had made 37 between Burbank and Boulder City and six via Vegas. Yeah, this definitely seems like it could be a habit thing. Yeah. Investigators found evidence that in some instances, crews will fly in a straight line to the destinations and not in sectors if it keeps the airplane on the quote-unquote right side of the airway. Not a good idea. Which, again, you cannot see. Right. Uh (laughs) It's dark. If the crew had done this on the 210 average course for Vegas to Daggett, they would have flown closer to Potosi Mountain, but still not into it. Doing so would have completely ignored the CAA's written notice of staying on the airway. But that wasn't a regulation or anything, so it was somehow okay to ignore it. So it seems that they flew on what they thought was the average magnetic course to Daggett, not realizing it was supposed to be 210 degrees, not 218 degrees, which was the average magnetic course for Boulder City to Daggett. So why did they fly straight into a mountain? Because they can't see. Although most beacons were in up due to the war. The war. The war. One of the five between Las Vegas and Silver Lake was lit. I'm sorry, it's supposed to be lighted, but lit. Lit. Beacon 24, or the Arden Beacon, which was 20 miles from Vegas, was still operating. Though helpful in navigation, these beacons aren't exactly on the airway. They're just near. Are these like They're literally lighthouses and yes. planes? That's what they are. <laughs> That's exactly what they are. So if, if you reobserve the map, you might notice that Beacon 24 is not like on the airway, really, sort no. of. It's like slightly off the airway yeah so if you are flying the airway you should be flying just to the left of beacon 24 the last time the captain flew this route that beacon was out now that it was on he may have assumed 
it was directly on the course, so he flew just to the right of it. You know, because you can have a little bit of error on the airway. This was a little too far to the right of that, though. Just to confirm that the crew was using their compass for a heading of 218 instead of radio navigation, investigators point out that if the crew had been using the radio to navigate like they should have, a quote-unquote moderate A signal would have been heard to indicate that the plane was off course. So they weren't doing that. They were using their compass to the wrong heading and flew straight into a mountain because it was a clear but moonless night. And the mountain was covered in snow. So that's the thing. That's all I got. That's all they had. Well, this was a time, the time before times. Yes. (laughs) Where they didn't have any extra anything to go off of. Also, they weren't much interested in this because, mind you, the war had only been going on for a month. The war! In the Pacific with the U.S. involvement. The war! We will explain that joke in the post episode, I swear. <laughs> yes. But for now, we shall take a break. Yep. And then come back for a very short second half. Yep. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The war! The war! We're back. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do the regular things. Findings. There were only 12 12. of them, and I am not doing all of them. (laughs) And these are cab findings they're also pretty short really short yeah yep and i'm definitely not doing all 12 because a lot of them were like everything was fine this was fine this This was was fine fine. this was fine they were just dumb yep so they found that the flight plan for flight three filed at albuquerque new mexico designated a magnetic course of 218 degrees for the portion of the route between las vegas nevada and daggett california the average of the courses of the sector comprising the route between las vegas and daggett is about 210 degrees 8,000 feet above sea level was the altitude designated in the flight plan. Sum that one up pretty well. Basically, it was just the mistake we talked about where he put 218 for some godforsaken reason. Habit. They found that about 15 minutes after departure from Las Vegas, Nevada, the airplane collided with Potosi Mountain in the Spring Mountain Range of Nevada at an elevation of 7,770 feet above sea level while approximately level longitudinally and laterally and while proceeding straight ahead approximately at cruising speed. The point of impact was a magnetic bearing of approximately 215 degrees from the Las Vegas airport. So all in the wrong places and flying straight and level, not at altitude. Yep. The map's on the website, by the way, and it's on Wikipedia. Yep. He found that the airplane was flown between Las Vegas, Nevada, and the point of impact on a course which was improper for the route involved. They found that the available radio range facilities were operating normally at the time of the incident. This was important, and I left this one in here because it was like, well, were they really operating where they were supposed to be for the radio? No, they were fine. It was fine. They just were dumb. They found that due to emergency conditions resulting from the war... The war! The war! war! Only one beacon between Las Vegas, Nevada and Silver Lake, California was operating. And finally, they found that there was no evidence of structural control system or power plant failure prior to the accident, and the engines and propellers were functioning normally at the time of the aircraft struck the mountain. So, again, everything was fine! Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. The probable cause. We're here already. Yep. (laughs) Upon the basis of the foregoing findings and of the entire record available at this time, we find that the probable cause of the accident to aircraft November Charlie 1, 9 or 4, 6 on January 16th, 1942 was the failure of the captain after departure from Las Vegas to follow the proper course by making use of the navigational facilities available to him. 
There are contributing factors. Contributing factors. Shut up. (laughs) The use of an erroneous compass course. Blackout of most of the beacons in the neighborhood of the accident made necessary by the war. The The war. war. Emergency. Sorry, it was by the war emergency. (laughs) Failure of the pilot to comply with TWA's directive of July 17th, 1941, issued in accordance with a suggestion from the Administrator of Civil Aeronautics requesting pilots to confine their flight movements to the actual on-course signals, a.k.a. the airway. Yep. That's it. So... I do feel that sums that up pretty well, especially since we didn't have black boxes or anything to go on. They had some recommendations to give from this. Not many. Really, they had one actual written recommendation, and I will read it verbatim. It is therefore recommended that the Administration of Civil Aeronautics establish for inclusion in the operational manual of air carriers such contact flight procedures... Meaning visual. Yep. At each airport as will ensure that the climb to and descent from cruising altitude be conducted at a safe distance from all obstructions. That is the whole recommendation. That was so vague. (laughs) Don't hit stuff. Fly somewhere along the actual course you intend to and from the altitude. That's pretty much it. Obviously, none of this matters anymore. Not even one bit of this. Not even even in general aviation, this doesn't matter either. Even though CFIT is still a thing. CFIT is still very much a thing, but it occurs for a lot of other reasons. But this was CFIT before CFIT was a term. Yep. It was CFIT before CFIT was cool. (laughs) (laughs) CFIT's never been cool. No. I'm pretty sure most of the episodes that make you mad are CFIT. Probably a good portion of them, because usually it has to do with pilot error. I am going to read one more thing from the recommendation section because they wrote paragraphs of stuff. Then? The graphs? I know. They wrote, The board is now considering proposed regulations which would require night contact flights to, one, remain within the confines of the proper twilight zone of the on-course signal, and two, fly at an altitude not less than 1,000 feet above the highest obstacle located within a horizontal distance of 10 miles from the center of the course intended to be flown. So that means 10 miles on all sides of the course that they're to be flying, they're supposed to be at least 1,000 feet above their highest obstacle in that course. This doesn't matter anymore because we cruise way above everything. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And in general aviation, you just plan accordingly. And also we've built much better airway systems that don't involve beacons. Yeah, lighthouses. Or anything like that, yeah. (laughs) Because we got around to having a lot better VOR systems and eventually DMEs, which are also still really outdated. But I mean, there's so many things that came along that was so much better than this. GPS navigation. GPS, GPS navigation is a marvelous thing. All right, so... That is it. Yeah, that was TWA Flight 3. Woo! All the way back. All the way back, and all the excitement of that. So, we're going to read some questions. 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 The first one's from David. Who actually has, like, military insight that we don't have. Yeah, yeah and it's, Thanks, it's about Iran Air Flight 655, okay. which was the shoot-down. Mm-hmm. You want me to read it? I can read it. Okay. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Regarding seeing an airplane from a naval vessel via binoculars in a war slash combat situation, nobody is outside the skin of the ship in a war slash combat situation involving inbound aircraft. And I kind of makes sense. Yeah, I can get that. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. All focuses on radar and other imaging systems with the CIC, the Combat Information Center. This is a learned behavior from World War II, Korea, and even Vietnam, where sailors exposed outside the ship 
are extremely vulnerable to both incoming and outgoing munitions. Muzzle blasts and exhaust from missiles can injure and kill as easily as war shot hitting yes, the ship. That's more what I was thinking of when you said, like, yeah. you stay in sight. Yeah, because the stuff on the ship itself is probably really dangerous. Shutters are lowered over bridge windows to keep blasts from breaking the glass and injuring those standing watches on the bridge from said broken glass. Completely fair. Yep. Those medals were mostly for morale. Not for the engagement, per se. And I can understand that, too. Sort of like a cop who murdered someone and was cleared of the murder getting cop of the year. Right. Regards. Mm. David. Yeah. Yep. Oh, boy. So, yeah, that I appreciate your insight because, yes, that all makes a lot of sense. I can understand why they... And the next one's from Alan. See it. Alan! Different Alan! Different, Alan. This different is, Alan. This is not the Alan that likes to make Miranda mad. Okay, yeah, well, still... Patron Alan. Alan. Two questions. Which is superior, New York-style pizza or Chicago-style pizza? Okay, listen. They're good for different reasons. I prefer Chicago-style pizza, but that's because I like thick crust and I like... Don't take this the wrong way. I like a lot of meat on my pizza. <laughs> you know, I'm really... It, it really depends on the moment for me. Because I am, yes, enamored to have deep dish and Chicago-style pizza occasionally but i am also enamored to go get myself a one dollar slice of which probably isn't one dollar anymore probably not it's probably like a dollar fifty a dollar fifty slice of new york style pizza giant thin but delicious greasiness i don't like thin crust pizza ever you know what's you know what's really bad is half of my family is from new york half of my family's from chicago that's a problem. To be fair, I've only been to New York once, and I've been to Chicago twice, but I've only been in the airport. So, I like both. I have to be in the mood for deep dish. I have to really want a lot of bread. Yeah. I'm always in the mood for a lot of bread. For deep dish. Okay. I also haven't had, like, true Chicago-style deep dish. Yes, because it is because a lot more different. stuff. It's a lot more stuff on it. And well, it, and, and there's sauce on the top. Yes. The part that took me by surprise, but I ended up really enjoying, is they do a lot more corn, ground corn on the crust the of corn the pizza. Meal? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, actually. I love the texture it adds. Mm-hmm. It, it's that whole thing from TikTok. Where's the cheese? It's under the sauce. Under the sauce. It's under the sauce. We already had this discussion. It's under the sauce! <laughs> yeah i like both i don't think i prefer i don't like super thin pizza but to be fair new york style pizza isn't ridiculously thin pizza it depends on where you it can be i like it still though i don't as long as it's not and what i mean by that is like it has to have enough sauce to cheese ratio to make it not ridiculously thin yeah like if the cheese doesn't fall off when you pick it up it's not new york style pizza yeah that's fair okay next question this one, we all have the same answer. Okay. Floppy bacon or crisp bacon? Floppy bacon. Floppy, Floppy bacon. bacon. I'll Every- eat both. I will absolutely eat both. Yes. Everyone I have asked this always says crispy bacon. I'm like, I cannot agree with you. I oh. really like chewy bacon. I do too. Yeah. It's so much I think more it's, flavorful. Yeah, I think it's got better flavor. I think it's got better texture. I think it's got just more. There's just I, more I, to I it. I really hate super crisp bacon. If it's like... Somewhere Bacon in between. Bits and a salad, like that's different. Sure. And somewhere in between, floppy and crispy is also acceptable. I will also eat the crispy bacon if I have to eat the crispy bacon. I don't mind. I like it, but I don't like you it. You know, as much as a I like place that does really crispy bacon is Villagin. Yes. Yeah. And I'll eat. I'll eat it, but it's not as good. That's why I don't ever get the bacon as also thick bacon. Love thick cut bacon. Oh thick yeah. Bacon. Yep. Wow, I'm just full of innuendos today. <laughs> 
How many C's with that thick bacon? Uh, At least three. (laughs) At least. At least. And then he just closes out saying, love the show. Keep up the good work. We love you too. Thanks. Also, chewy cookies. Chewy cookies. Oh, yes. And steak has to be medium rare. Yep. 10 out of 10. And if you say otherwise, you are incorrect. There's no way around either one of those things. Also, coconut is delicious. Yes. Oh, I love coconut. Voila. Those are four of the red flags in Miranda's dating questionnaire. Actually, we came up with that together but yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, when, when was the last time like i i had to go scouting for a date fair enough yeah <laughs> came out, you, we figured that out i don't remember how we figured that out but we did so your exes yeah. <laughs> yeah, my ex well our combined exes yes my ex liked his steak medium well and he didn't like coconut Ugh. that's like butchering a steak i don't eat steak very often but but you know how to eat it when it comes down to well, it. Of course I do. I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank okay. you so much Anyways. for listening. We're going to continue some of this conversation in the post episode. About the war. The, the war. war. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Check out the Patreon. I know I say it every week, but like, there's so much awesome stuff on there that I think you guys would really like. So if you really like the actual podcast, I highly suggest going and checking out Patreon because there's blooper reels on there because believe me, there's some juicy stuff on those blooper oh, reels. Oh, yeah. Oh, Miranda man. burping. That's one of the juicy things on the blooper reels. <laughs> Us singing songs from SpongeBob is also another one. So. Yep. Anyway, feel free to check that out. Don't feel pressure. I mean, obviously not everybody can do it. Not everyone's into it. We get it. So if you're not like keen into doing that maybe buy yourself a piece of merch yeah which is also on the website yeah anyway have a safe and healthy week catch you all next week keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen if you would like to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.